Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What would you do if you were having a nice fun time at a summer camp, making wallets, going for hikes, enjoying nature, and then the aliens decided to join you? And then what would you do if one night you were kicking back a few brewskis down at the local pub and in walked a cryptid? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Welcome back to another episode of Dead Rapid Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day, too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun doing whatever you're doing. We got a lot of stuff to cover, so first off, let's go ahead and get started. Walking into Dead Rabbit Command is one of our newest Patreon supporters. Give it up for the Lost Kumquat again. Woo! Come on in, Lost Kumquat. How do you pronounce that? Kumquat? Quamquat? The last Quamquat people. <laughs> Jason, I know you have a hard time pronouncing names. This is a fruit. This is a super well-known fruit. Quamquat, right? Quamquat. The last Quamquat, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, I totally understand it. Just help spread the word about the show. That really, really, really helps out a lot. We got some flyers in the show notes you can print out and pass around town. We're actually going to do a redesign on the flyers coming up. So if you want, if you want those classic Dead Rabbit Radio flyers... Download those images now. Quamquat, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the hair hang glider. We're going to jump off the highest point of Dead Rabbit Command, and we're going to glide all the way out to Russia. It's a long it's a long glide. I hope you guys brought some granola bars. I brought mine. Nom, 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 nom. And <laughs> as you're slowly starving, by the time we get there, you're all emaciated. Ugh. Luckily, we get there eventually. It's September 22nd, 1980. Specifically, we're in the Sidar region of Russia. And it's evening. The sun has set. The birds are going to bed. The owls are waking up, getting ready to do their job, being spooky. And in the Sidar region here in Russia, there's a Russian summer camp. Actually, it's in September. These kids, they're a little late. You guys need to get back to school. It's fall, right? September. Maybe it's a fall camp. Maybe things are different over in Russia. But anyways, there's this camp, and it's mostly these young teenagers. Most of the campers are like 14 to 15 years old. And you have camp counselors. Obviously, you have adults there watching the whole situation. Now, I've never been to camp. My family was too poor to afford camp. I've watched a lot of documentaries about camps, like Meatballs. I watched the Meatballs movies, the one where the alien showed up. I think that was Meatballs 4. Obviously, I also watched Salute Your Shorts. Award-winning documentary about camp life. I've never been to a summer camp. I've watched Camp Rock multiple times, though. This is what I would think camp would be like, right? You'd go, you'd sing a song, you'd kiss a girl, you'd meet an alien, and you'd get in a boxing match, and the alien would levitate you around. Dead Rabbit recommends Meatballs 4, or whatever Meatballs movie that's doing aliens in. I don't know how many times I watched it as a kid. A lot. 
But I assume summer camp is like that. Maybe you make a couple wallets, you're like sewing stuff. Maybe maybe a zombie named Jason Voorhees kills you, but something like that. Apparently in Russia, none of that stuff happens. You don't get to kiss a girl, you don't get to make a wallet, you don't even get killed by Jason Voorhees. On this particular day, <laughs> in Russia, this is what apparently they do in the camp, they were washing their dishes in a ditch. In 1980, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure Russia had indoor plumbing. They had a ditch, they had like this trench dug, and these kids were washing their dishes, right? They're like grabbing more mud, they're like, washy, washy, washy. They're like, uh, this is why we're still in summer camp in September, guys. Learn to wash your dishes. But these kids are washing ditch dishes in a ditch, and then all of a sudden, Aliens showed up. It's just like me both four. This UFO shows up and it's hovering over the camp area. It's actually a bit farther off, but it's close enough that they can see it. They said it was 50 feet in diameter. It was this massive object and it lands in a nearby field. So the kids start running. They're like, we can do the dishes later. We've been watching them for hours. They're still muddy. The kids leave the dishes in the ditch, and they start running to their cabins. Which, specifically in Russia, they're not called camp cabins. They're called barracks. So I don't know what type of camp this was. It might have been a prison labor camp. But these kids are running from the ditch, which would be your natural reaction, right? I think if you saw like a UFO, you'd be like, oh, dude, look at that. Look at that unidentified flying object way up in the sky. What is that? But if you watched it land nearby, like, I think part of me would want to go check it out. But I'm 14 years old. And <laughs> I'm so dumb. I'm watching watching dishes in a ditch. I'm obviously not really thinking things through. I'm out of there. So these kids are running back to their cabins. And they tell the camp counselors. And they're like, oh, dude, watch out. Like, this big old thing. It landed over in that field. And the camp counselors are smart enough, they go, get in the cabins, get in the cabins. <laughs> they're, they're like, they're not cabins, they're barracks. They're like these old stone brick buildings. Whatever, just get in them. They're all in these cabins. That is when all of the cabin windows just kind of, just kind of blow open. And they're like the shutters, right? It wasn't like glass flying everywhere, but like the shutters on the windows just kind of blew open. And they were saying that there was no wind previous to this. There's no wind at all. And now this violent force has thrust open the cabin shutters. And you have, I think they're all in one barrack at this point. I don't think someone was like, oh no, this isn't where I sleep. I need to go to my bed. They're like, no, Billy, no. He's running over to his own cabin. I think everyone from the way the story is told, everyone is in one building. And the shutters are thrown open. And at this point, like every, the camp counselors believe in something weird is going on. They're in there. The kids are in there. And one of the kids, we'll call him Joe. Joe starts walking towards the door, opens it up, and runs outside. And he's just running through this now empty campground as you have this mysterious force blowing the shutters open. And one of the camp counselors sees this, and she takes off after him, and she's running. Luckily, she's faster than him, and she's able to grab him before he's halfway towards where they believe this UFO landed. So she grabs this kid, and she's dragging him back. And while she's dragging him back, he's kicking and screaming. He's saying, quote, 
I want to be with them. I want to be with them. I want to be with them. And she's dragging him back. And then he breaks free. I want to be with them. I want to be with them. And she's like, (laughs) she gets up and she starts running back after him. Tackles him again is now finally able to drag him. Although, I don't know what the other camp counselors are doing at this point. They're, like, making bets. You're like, you think she's strong enough to take that kid down? And so, anyways, they bring the kid back. (laughs) Once she finally gets close enough to the door, the other counselors are like, oh, look at here, let me help you. They had to tie the boy down with bedsheets because he wanted to run out to the UFO so badly. They had to tie him down and... He was sitting there struggling against the sheets, begging, pleading to be let go so he could be with them. And then, after a period of time, that didn't sound like a UFO effect. You're old on that. Didn't sound like it was from another world. It sounded like I ran out of breath during the UFO effect. After a period of time, the UFO begins to leave. And then the young boy, Joe. Uh, I don't think he made such a pleasurable moan. I don't think it sounded like that. My notes actually just said that he stopped. He calmed down. It didn't say that he went, oh my, what what an erotic adventure. It just said he calmed down. I don't know why I made that weird noise. Anyways, that is from, I got that from thinkaboutadocs.com. They got it from a source called X Library UFO Russia. And we've talked so much about Russian UFO encounters. They were covered up for years and years and years. They were never getting out from behind the Iron Curtain. And a lot of these stories weren't even reported because the KGB, like, you know, in America, we had the FBI and the CIA looking into all sorts of people saying that they're seeing these UFOs. Some of them they knew was test equipment, you know, stuff we were testing. And some of it they didn't know what it was. And then you have the stories of the Men in Black, a ultra-secret government agency, or maybe not even of this world, also investigating this stuff. In Russia, you have the KGB. And if you're like, hey, I saw something weird in the sky, you basically got punched in the stomach for a couple of days until you, until you either said you didn't see something in the sky because it was part of their secret warfare, their weapon testing stuff, or they wanted to know if you were a a U.S. spy or, you know, you were crazy or whatever. Like people were not, people were not openly admitting they saw UFOs, but once the Iron Curtain fell, once the KGB became, they just changed the letters in their name. They're still, uh, anyways, I don't want to get beat up. Who are they now? Gru, I think it is, G-R-U. But uh, yeah, they they stopped punching so much, I think, nowadays. Now I think they only just go with a right hook for a while, and then they let you go. But now that the Iron Curtain has fallen, the Soviet Union has fallen, we're getting a ton of stories out of the uh, Russia region. Which is cool for us. But let's take a look at this one in particular. I, I When I read this, I thought... You, we, we covered a story recently about a guy who went crazy during a UFO encounter and wanted to like join the aliens. I'll try to find that episode in the show notes. It was late last season. I'm trying to remember what, a, what the exact details it was. But I think it was two friends and one of them wanted to stay and he had to be like forced. Or one of them wanted to go with the aliens and he had to be forced to stay... Something like that. And then I had this story as well. And I thought, how stressful must this be? 
Like how the situation of already being confronted with something that, yeah, sure, I believe in aliens, and I think the recent poll was like 52% of Americans believe that extraterrestrials exist. But a big amount of those numbers are, sure, yeah, somewhere in the universe there's alien life. Like, that's a huge chunk of that. To actually, the people actually believe we're regularly being visited by aliens, the number's much smaller. So even if you, you know, I believe in aliens, but if all of a sudden I'm confronted with an alien life form, I would imagine it would be very, very stressful. You notice in a lot of these alien stories, we just covered one yesterday. The first thing the aliens say is be calm, calm down. That is almost always the first thing the aliens say. Even the ones that appear in human form say, hey, chill. Okay, be, be cool. Because it would be extremely stressful to meet an alien because all of a sudden you have your whole paradigm shift even if you believe in aliens now it's proof and if you mildly believe in aliens it's proof of something that you kind of considered and if you don't believe in aliens at all it's world shattering it could destroy your entire way you look at reality so that's already stressful enough now imagine experiencing it with total strangers or people you know kind of well these campers they forged friendships along the way Camp counselors, they, they might not even like some of these kids. They're just doing the job. It's just kind of a regular assemblage of people. And then this happens. And you're thrust into this life-changing event that you don't know how it's going to end. I mean, we're reading the story later, and it's just something that I'm talking about in a haunted closet. But at the moment in time, they have no idea how it's going to end. Is this the first wave of an invasion? Is everyone going to get nuked off the area? Is everyone going to get abducted? You don't know. So there's that level of stress. You're being confronted with the unknown in front of a bunch of people that you barely know, which would make it even worse. And then one of the one of these Nimrods decides to make the situation worse by running towards them. Like, there's a, just such a level of stress to this story that I find fascinating. And that young woman running out after him, grabbing him and dragging him back. Like, I don't know if I would. <laughs> I mean, I guess it is her job to keep him safe. She's a camp counselor, but... So you have all of that. You have all of that stress on there, right? Someone trying to actually go towards this unknown force. And then, really, the ultimate question is, what was prompting him to do that? It could have been two things. It could have been the idea that the aliens were communicating with him, which, again, is very common in UFO lore. You have aliens sending telepathic messages and selecting people. A lot of times they say aliens only appear to you if you are chosen. That's why not everyone sees UFOs. And then there's even the time we've covered a couple stories like this where the aliens choose you and then they run a test on you and say, no, you're not going to meet our needs and they leave you. So there does seem to be some sort of selection process. Was he selected? But then also you got to wonder if his brain just broke. Like, if he wasn't selected, the aliens were there for some other reason, and this kid confronted with something. 1980 Russia, even in America in the 1980s, like, we were aware of Little Green Men, and it was more of a jokey thing with aliens. Like, people who believed in aliens when I was a kid were considered cuckoo, cuckoo, like, total wackadoodle. They'd write these books and stuff like that in tinfoil hats. And that, and that was in a place where you had freedom of press and people were putting out these books like Chariots of the Gods and you were able to watch these shows um, like in search of Leonard Nimoy's uh, documentary and all that stuff. Imagine in a repressive government where information's completely controlled. 
And you didn't have that stuff. You probably didn't even have Star Trek. You were vaguely aware of aliens, maybe, in 1980s Russia. And you're being confronted with this. If we saw a giant vehicle descend from the sky, at least we can put it into context, being like, oh, that might be aliens. But if you had no concept of aliens, you're 14, 15 years old growing up in this area, it would totally break your brain. I think you wouldn't be able to... I think <laughs> I think it would break your brain even if you didn't know about aliens if you were vaguely... Oh, I've seen a couple episodes of The X-Files. Great alien walks your room. You're not going to be like, hey, what's up? How's Mulder doing? It's still going to affect you, but imagine if you didn't have any context for it and you saw that happening. So was this kid actually being contacted by the aliens? Or did was the event so traumatic he broke? I think I lean more towards the telepathic thing because when the vehicle left, he seemed to return to normal. But... My thing is, if the aliens, we've seen their power level before, if they wanted him, they would have marched right into that camp and taken him. They would have frozen everyone in the camp. The kid would have been gone missing, right? Right from the bedsheets. We've seen the power level of these things. So maybe he just went nuts, which is, again, a very terrifying answer, because how can you really... How do we know how we're really going to react when we're placed in a situation, such a stressful situation like that? Will we be able to kind of keep our wits about us or will we find ourselves running towards the unknown? Because at this point, everything's unknown. Everything you ever thought about the world is wrong. You see this giant ship land and you realize that everything you've been told that rationally happens and rationally exists just doesn't the rules of the universe has changed creepy telepathic communication or did the kid go insane we don't know but an interesting story and i'm glad i could share it with you the last quamquat let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the carpenter copter we're leaving behind russia we are heading all the way out to a small town on the edge of the woods <laughs> I found this story on the X board, so as much as I love the X board, it does have the limitations of everyone there post anonymously. We don't have names, we don't have dates, we don't even have a location for this story, but that's fine, right? It's still, I think, a very, very interesting tale. But I, from what I can put together, there's a key detail that makes me think this story takes place somewhere in. Western Europe. I could be totally wrong about that. It doesn't affect the story too much, but just because Quonquat's flying the carbon copter, I think we're going to be somewhere in Western Europe because we're going to be visiting a bar that is centuries old. And America, America is only about 200 and some odd years old. So I don't think it takes place in America. I think it takes place somewhere in Britain or France or something like that. So just fly the carpenter copter and we're just going to jump up, jump out of the carpenter copter somewhere around this region. And we're going to meet a young man named Mark. That's your real name? Just a guess. But Mark is at a crossroads in his life. When the story takes place, he's 23 years old. He's in between jobs. He doesn't seem like he's had a very pleasant experience in life. He says that his dad was kind of a jerk and taught him, you know, never back down from a fight. Never turn your back on someone. Always got them fist raised if someone's challenging you. And those, while those may be good lessons in context... They can also serve you very, very poorly if your boss is like, Mark, where's your reports? Come on, don't make me fire you. And you're like, what'd you say to me? 
<laughs> like there are certain times where you have to be like, ah. But Mark does have a caveat to that because, again, you sometimes do have to back down from fights. One thing he also learned, because this kid seems like he goes out a lot to a lot of clubs, a lot of drinking, and he's been in a lot of fights. Mark said, one thing that I've learned is I take my social cues from my friends. So if we go out to a club and some guy's talking trash, and all my friends are like, let's just get out of here, whatever, this club sucks anyways. He goes, I'll go with my friends. He goes, if we're there and they want to square up and fight, I'm down. I'll be the first one to fight. But he's not going to put his friends in a situation where they don't want to be in, basically. He goes, if they're ready to go, he's ready to go. If they're ready to fight, he's ready to fight. But if he's not getting those social cues, it's almost like his dad is whispering in his ear, don't back down. Mark, he's in between jobs, and, and his best friend says, Mark, you know what? You're not, you're not doing anything right now. Why don't you come and hang out with my family for a couple weeks? I'm going to go back, visit my family. We're, we live out on the outskirts of the forest. <laughs> Some sort of fairy tale gingerbread village. We live out in the boonies, but why don't you come hang out with us? My family's really cool. They'd love to have you. And so Mark and his friend, we'll call his friend Peter, Mark and Peter go out to see Peter's family, and Mark is impressed. His family is super cool. It's exactly kind of what he needed right now. He just kind of didn't need some chill time. But Peter's grandpa, while seeming like a cool guy, is quiet. But not quiet in the way that he's shy. Before he says something, you can tell he thinks about what he's going to say. He considers... The phrases he uses. Doesn't speak all the time, but when he speaks, it means something. And when that first night they're all hanging out, Grandpa turns to Mark and says, You know, you're a city boy. So, make sure you're in the house before nightfall. Mark thinks this comment's kind of weird, but... He understands he is coming from a city, and here's this old man who's lived his entire life in this region. Mark says, you know, that's nice. That's nice that you're warning me and all, but don't worry about me. I'm not just a city boy. I've actually been hunting. I've spent some time in the woods. And the grandpa looked at Mark and said, not these woods. And Mark thought this comment was kind of odd, and it made him really curious, right? Here's this old man who doesn't speak of things lightly. Right? This is just the presence that this grandpa gives. And Mark asks, what do you mean about that? And as the grandpa begins to mention something about the woods, something being in the woods, the rest of Peter's family kind of cuts off grandpa, changes the subject. And the grandpa just drops it. One night, all the men in the family go out to this local bar. So you got Mark, you got Peter, you got Grandpa, and then you have Peter's dad and Peter's uncle, and they're going out to this bar, and they make sure to tell... Mark thought this was another odd thing. As they're going to the bar, they kept making sure that Mark knew how old this bar was. They said the bar we're about to go to is older than your great-great-grandpa. This bar is centuries old. Mark's like, yeah, okay, you know. I don't know if, like, you're warning me the plumbing doesn't work or anything. He goes, they really, really kept emphasizing how old this bar was. 
Mark didn't really think anything of it. A neat piece of trivia, sure, but you, you only got to say it once. You don't got to keep reemphasizing it. Walks in, it's a normal bar, right? I mean, it is old, it's old, but, you know, barkeep, patrons, tables, and most importantly, alcohol, kind of what you need for a bar. So Mark's sitting there with Peter's family. They're sitting around drinking, talking, having a good time. And then at one point in the night, Mark is drinking his beer and he looks over at Peter and Peter is nervous. He's giving off this energy right now that he doesn't want to be here anymore. And Mark picks up on it right away and he looks and sees what Peter's looking at. And then Peter immediately looks down at the table. But Mark is now looking across the bar, and what he realizes is everyone is gone. The bar is empty now, save for this group of men and a dude sitting by the door. Even the bartender is gone. Mark looks at this figure sitting by the door and he sees kind of a, he looks like a big guy, not overly large, but, and before he can really take in any more detail, he feels Grandpa's hand dig into his bicep. Grandpa has Mark's arm in a death grip. And he turns and he looks back at Grandpa, and Grandpa, while holding Mark's arm, squeezing it, is staring down at the table. Mark is looking at the table that he's at, and everyone is just staring down at the table. No one is moving. The room is tense. And Mark thinks maybe this guy's like some super high-level criminal in the area, right? He's not familiar with this area. This could be some big drug runner. It could be a known hitman in the area, some sort of organized crime guy. But this feels different. Sure, people may be deferential towards a crime lord in their area or just scared, but something is different here. And he turns to get another look at the man, and Grandpa squeezes Mark's arm even harder. So hard now, it's hurting him. And that is when Peter nudges Mark and hisses, don't look. And right when Peter says that, the man at the door gets up out of his chair and begins walking towards the table. Mark is sitting there, and he looks up at this guy as he's walking towards him, and he gets a better look at him. He has shockingly red hair. He's youngish. He's a youngish man, broad-shouldered, but normal-looking. Not covered in these crazy tattoos. Doesn't look like he's been in a thousand bar fights. Doesn't look like some sort of crazy criminal. Just a normal-looking guy walking towards them. And Mark is drunk at this point. And he's looking at the table of his compatriots. And he's wondering, what do I do? 
He's looking for that social cue. Now, if everyone at the table said, let's get up and leave, he would have got up and left with them. And he can tell that there is obviously something going on at this table. They're scared of him. But what do I do? This guy's walking towards us now. Do I look down at my drink? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. He's walking towards us. Mark is sitting there at the table. He makes direct eye contact with the man. And the man stops in the center of the bar. Mark looks deep into the stranger's eyes and says, What are you looking at? When he says that, Grandpa lets go of Mark's arm. And everyone at that table is just pretending that none of this is happening. They're just silently staring down at the table, trying to ignore reality. Mark gets up. He's holding his beer in one hand. He walks over to the stranger and says, We got a problem? Stranger's just staring at Mark. And now, for the first time this evening, Mark feels it. He feels like he's tapped into this energy that everyone else was feeling. Something is wrong here. Mark is staring at this young man, and Mark starts to wonder, is this guy even human? He's terrified. He's petrified in a way he's never been scared like this before. But he doesn't know how to back down. He's almost too terrified to even move. So what he does is the same bombastic comments that you always make in a club when you're getting ready to fight. It's time for you to leave, buddy. Trying to bluff his way out of this. Trying to get the guy to turn around and walk away. But all Mark wants to do is walk away. He feels like he's going to piss his pants right there. His pride and his fear are colliding in this moment. He can't back down, but he just wants to disappear. And when pride and fear collide, it makes you make dumb decisions. And Mark raises his right fist. He's just going to do what he always does. He's going to knock this stranger out. And as he raises his fist to throw a punch, the stranger catches his hand. And immediately, Mark's skin begins to burn. He said... The guy got a hold of his right wrist. He just grabbed it mid-punch. And this guy's grip is holding right onto him. And he goes, it felt like his skin was acid. I could feel it burning my skin. I didn't know what this dude was. I didn't know. I couldn't even comprehend what could actually be happening. Was this guy, was this guy like a chemical worker? Was he secreting some sort of caustic fluid? And almost... It, the, the the pain was so intense, my brain was just kind of not working. I'm screaming in pain. And I also remember at this point, I'm holding a beer in my left hand and I smash it against this guy's face. I let out this deep roar and I just lay a left right into this dude's face. And the dude let me go. 
When that beer smashed into the stranger's face, he released my right wrist, turned, silently walked away. And then he left the bar. But my wrist continued to burn. I'm looking down at my wrist, trying to figure out how he did that. Trying to figure out when this pain would go away when the barkeep walks back in from a back room. Pretending like none of this ever happened. Peter's family gets up from the booth. They're immediately asking, is everything okay? How's everything going? Are you fine? And I bluff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. Just need another drink is all. But I'm terrified. And they know I'm terrified. We go back to Peter's family's house. Drinking. Playing cards. Just talking. We stay up until the sun rises. Even Grandpa stayed up till the morning. Which is good because I didn't want to go to sleep. And we drank and we played cards and we talked. But we never talked about what happened in that bar. Life goes on. You know, I was just visiting for a couple weeks. I go back to the city, start looking for work, just continue my life. But to this day, Mark's wrist is numb. He says, right where that guy touched me, I have no feeling in that part of my wrist. It's completely numb. He said, I went to the doctor to get it checked out, and he had this little pin And he kept poking it. He says he poked it ten times. I can't feel anything. And the doctor goes, based on your symptoms, I think you had a mild stroke. But you definitely have no feeling. You definitely cannot feel anything in your wrist. And he's told this story. He was talking about one of his girlfriends. He said that she was just a weirdo. (laughs) And she would bite it. She would bite his wrist as hard as she could. He wouldn't feel it. And he told her about what happened at the bar, but she just said, I think the doctor is right. I think he just had a mild stroke. I don't believe anyone could be carrying acid on their skin or whatever. Whatever, maybe another bite on your wrist will persuade me. And he says, when I look back on that situation, I think that I came out of it on sheer luck. This thing could have taken me apart. But I escaped just out of luck. He didn't overwhelm it with physical force. He didn't scare it away. The thing decided not to kill him. It wasn't because of anything that Mark did. His life was literally in this stranger's hands. And he says he's asked his friend, because obviously his friend was familiar with this person. Right? The friend was nervous the second he realized this guy was in the bar. He asked his friend, he's asked him a couple times, hey, what was that? You know, Now that he's safely at home and life has returned to normal, what was up with that guy at the bar? And his friend responds when he asks this question, his friend responds, quote, it doesn't matter now. And it's better. You don't know. Unquote. Fascinating story, obviously. The idea of cryptids being in the woods, being on the outskirts, that is 
as old as humanity, the werewolf in between towns. But when you ha- it would make sense that you would have some of these beings interacting with us in our infrastructure. In our big cities would be perfect for cryptids to hunt. Sewage, sewage systems, obviously subways, things like that. But bars as well, right? And you think this, was this some sort of cryptid that came out of the woods? Something old and ancient that the people in this area knew of and they knew to avoid. And I keep using the word cryptid, but I actually have another theory for what this could be. Recently, I think it was a week or two ago, I did an episode, The Missing 411 Multidimensional Man-Bear Demons versus the U.S. Army. And in that one, we were talking about the Nephilim. We were talking about giants living up at, where was it, Mount St. Helens, Mount Shasta, one of the two. Giant, red-headed Nephilim, right? And the idea of the red hair being connected to the Nephilim is very, very common in modern Nephilim lore. I don't think it's actually in the Bible where it specifies they have red hair. But in a lot of modern accounts that are connected to giants or to the Nephilim, the Nephilim are when an angel and a human woman have a child. It's known as the Nephilim. Red hair is very commonly connected to it. We did an episode about... Do the Nephilim look like clowns? Is that why people find clowns so terrifying? Because they have pale skin and red hair. And I'm wondering if that's what this could have been as well. Now, Nephilim, they're usually these giant, eight-foot-tall people. But again, that's kind of a misnomer. In the Bible, it says the Nephilim, these men were giants, heroes of renown. Um, And it may be not necessarily a giant physical stature, but a giant reputation. A character like Hercules, for example, was not physically eight, nine feet tall, but he was giant in the sense that everyone knew who he was. He was a hero. So is that what he faced down? This man, this human-looking person with red hair, but the heart of a corrupted angel. A creature, something not of this world or of heaven or of hell, but something else, all of them and nothing at the same time that operates in this area. And the people in town know well enough that when he walks into this bar or when he walks anywhere in town, that part of town shuts down and you just pretend that he's not there. But he is. A terrifying story because it could have gone either way. Whether this guy was a cryptid, whether this guy was a Nephilim or just some lunatic drug lord who happened to shoot acid out of his hands, Mark could have easily just disappeared, right? And the fact that this town was so terrified to even acknowledge this guy's existence, had this guy ripped Mark apart in front of all these witnesses and then left the bar, Mark would have just disappeared. They would have cleaned up the area. And they would have kept a code of silence like they already keep a code of silence. This is a town of secrets. And whoever this individual was, his identity was known to the people in the town, or at least his reputation was. They knew this guy was not from around here. And they kept this secret. They hoped when they took Mark out to the bar that they would never even meet this guy, right? 
but he did show up, and an outsider had an encounter with him. He didn't know the rules. He didn't know how you're supposed to deal with a stranger, but to everyone else in town, this wasn't a stranger. It was a phenomenon they knew to avoid. One of the things that I think is easy to forget about stories like this is they are told by survivors. And there are countless stories where people go missing or people die, and we are left wondering what happened. And we never know. We don't know if it was a natural death or a natural disappearance, falling down a crevasse or something like that. Because the only time we know that it's paranormal when someone survives it and says, man, you won't believe what happened. I was out at a Russian summer camp. And a UFO showed up. Or I went to a bar and I ran into someone who wasn't quite human. Because this town was so good at keeping secrets, was so good at following the rules to avoid these things, that had Mark lost this fight, had this creature completely decimated Mark, they would have just cleaned up the mess and gone on with their lives. Peter would have a horrible secret. He invited his best friend to hang out with him, and he got his best friend killed. But the world would never know this story. It would just be one more secret in a town full of secrets. But we know about this story because Mark survived. The world of the paranormal is only known because of people who make it back alive. So think about that before you hope to someday see proof that aliens or ghosts or cryptids exist. Because you may find proof, but you may not be lucky enough to live to tell the tale. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.